Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, for a 13-year period, there were zero African Americans in pro football. That all changed in 1946 as we highlight the NFL's Forgotten Four. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr., I'm ready. The papers are back. I have lots of them today. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, especially, especially NFL history, football history. Welcome. This show is for you, not for the know-it-alls. Poof, be gone. Find another show, please. But if you want to stay, please stay. Please stay and listen. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we're here to do what? Enlighten, teach, and learn the behind the mic podcast that's what it is i'm your host michael neal jr it is presented by belly up sports the belly up sports podcast network bellyupsports.com and you can catch this show as well as others on the belly up sports roster on spreaker apple Podcasts, spotify google podcast amazon music stitcher iHeartRadio, youtube and more so Black History Month is almost coming to a close, right? So what, I think the 28th is on Monday, uh, and that marks the end of the month, or is this a leap year? Anyway, you slice it. By the time you plug this thing in on Wednesday, Black History Month will be over uh, come next week. You'll hear this show tomorrow. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday night. Um, Show always drops on Wednesday. But there's no need to stop it because, all right, With me, I'm making adjustments because throughout the majority of February, I've been doing Super Bowl-type shows, themed shows, uh, playoff-themed shows. And then at the same time, we've been doing posts and things on pro football history, African-Americans in pro football, and and the like. So, look, it's time to do some shows, and (laughs) Black History Month doesn't have to stop at a month. You could do that anytime. And it's my show. I could do what I want to (laughs) All right, so, uh, yes, uh, the word for today, though, there is no rundown because there's no season. So the word for the word, excuse me, for the day is integration or better yet, reintegration. I've said at times about and just thinking about it over the years, uh, just how just thinking about how difficult it would have been to have lived in certain times in those times where blacks were enslaved. Of course, they're still hated, but hated to the max, lynched and had dogs turned loose on them, beat up, spit on. Not saying that that stuff does not happen today, just not at the same clip. But it's a scary thought to have grown up probably in any century other than this one. 
I mean, as much as we may want to complain, we've got it a lot better. Um, There's still plenty of improvements that need to be made uh, for minorities of all races and cultures. But just thinking about it when it comes to sports and in particular pro football, you know, also um, even outside of sports, I also wonder what it was like being a white person or Caucasian who helped blacks or wanted to help blacks. Some of them had to do it undercover. Some people, they had to step out in front and do things, right? Well, you know, you have a lot of different things in life that happen. I had a really good conversation with one of my buddies at work. Um, We were talking about some things. And what I said was uh, when it comes to, you know, movement and how things get better, whether it's in the country uh, or in any endeavor when it comes to race, I'm just being honest. Those who are the problem or, or those who are among those who are the problem have to make the change. We could talk about Malcolm X. We could talk about um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and any other person uh, of color that came through as civil rights leaders and things like that. But it took someone who was Caucasian, just to be straight up, to put their bid in to help with those kind of movements if those who are doing the hating those who are the ones who are making the restrictions yes we as uh african americans or anyone who is a minority you do have to do what you have to do to let your voice be heard that this is wrong or this is bad and things need to change yes you have to make your voice heard and these next two shows are going to highlight the nfl's forgotten four Okay, what well, they're really not forgotten in truth. Um, but you have those who had to pave the way and help. And it wasn't, it's not always someone who's black or African American or Mexican, Latino, or, or, or you know, Hispanic or Chinese or, 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 or Asian or, or whatever that has to make those moves. You have to change the, the, the hearts and the minds of those who are doing the bad have to change. And you have to have those whose hearts are in the right place to actually step forward as well. Those two things make things a whole lot better. And you have to give them credit where it's due because if they hadn't made some of the moves that whether it was those who are of color or those who are absent of color, whether they were black or Caucasian or whatever, people have to work together and they have to come to an agreement and someone has to change. And it's not always a change for your betterment as a minority. Sometimes it's for their benefit, to be honest. Uh, I talked about the Kansas City Chiefs and Lamar Hunt, whose intentions were, uh, I would say that they were good, but he did say he wasn't trying to make a social statement. Okay, he said that that's in print. He was not trying to necessarily make a social statement by bringing African-Americans and welcoming them into the American Football League, the AFL from 1960 to 1970 when the, uh, well, 69 really. He wasn't trying to make a necessarily a social statement, but I think some things grow on people and sometimes uh, getting to know people and and seeing that what you were taught was really bad. And you recognize that and say, I'm going to do an about face. So wherever, whatever side you're on, I mean, doing right is doing right and doing good is doing good. But 
going into this show, look, you have some people, uh, you, you got the truth of those who created the mess, the mess, but you also have to recognize the people that want to fix it and give them some kind of credit. And I know it's not easy. You know, a majority of the world, you know, they felt the same way about African-Americans uh, in the in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even up to 2022. But there are plenty of those who will do the right thing as well as their minds is not the same as that old archaic racist mindset. And we have to recognize that as well. So, you know, living in those times as a black person, whether you're a man or a woman, boy or girl, it, 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 it had to be scary. And of course, if I lived in that time, there was adjustments that were going to be made. But there were those who were really, really brave and they were forerunners uh, to the African-Americans, the blacks, the, the Latinos and name that um, that race or whatever, whether they were coaches or players that, that someone had to step forward and and they had to take a lot of crap. Once they did and once they made those steps and just highlighting a couple of them right off the top and opening the show. Of course, the first African-American pro football player, period, that got paid for it was Charles Follis. OK, Charles Follis, he played uh, pro ball back in 1904 for the Shelby Athletic Club and the Bright Cyclone. He played against the likes of guys like Branch Rickey, a Caucasian man who recognized his talent. And obviously, this was one of those guys who stepped forward and gave opportunities to an African, or gave an opportunity or opportunities to an African American by the name of Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey was the one who ended up becoming the president and GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945. The next year in 1946, Jackie Robinson got signed on to a minor league, the, the top minor league affiliate. For the Brooklyn Dodgers and of course in 1947 he broke that color barrier in pro baseball which they wanted no parts of African Americans but if you fat if you rewind back to when the NFL first started going into what the 1918s 1919s 1920 was the official first year of the of the league before it was called the NFL and you had players from 1920 to 1933 you had players that were highlighted such as Gideon Smith and Henry McDonald, Doc Baker, and of course, Fritz Pollard, who was recognized as the first African-American in pro football, or at least the first African-American head coach. He was a player and a coach. Yes, he was a co-head coach with a man by the name of uh, Elgie Tobin back in 21. And he, he, had, he had to be, uh, in reading his story, obviously, blacks were not like, they couldn't eat in the same place they couldn't crap in the same place they couldn't pee in the same places they couldn't sleep in the same places and they some cases they couldn't even ride on the same team bus or whatever and they had to get dressed in another locker room but they did it and they 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 made it and they per, they 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 pushed through and made it to the to the top of the top okay yeah paul robeson who was a 1918 first-team All-American end out of Rutgers. He played just three years in the league, and this is before he was a stage and film actor and a, what, a, a baritone singer and, a, and a, somewhat of an activist later on in his career. That was more of his focus, but he played three years in the league. 
He played for the Hammond Pros and the Akron Pros, 1920 and 1921, and the Milwaukee team in 1922. But fast forward to 1926. Things are starting to get shaky here in America, even after everything is going so well in the United States of America. 1926, as far as the NFL is concerned, the first real star of the NFL was Red Grange. Red Grange tried to start up his own uh, football league, which was the American Football League. It folded after one year. Mm. 1927, the NFL actually had been reduced from 22 teams to 12. Finances, for the most part. And then keep in mind that the NCAA football, as well as like boxing, they were the sports of the time, the sports where everybody was flocking to. Football was fairly new, especially professional football. Nobody wanted to play professional football back then, right? 1927, like I said, they reduced their teams to 12 in 1929. Well, all Hades broke loose. The stock market crashed. And then there was the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl, if you're not familiar with that, the Dust Bowl was basically... Uh, and it was in the 1930s. It was basically a dust storm that killed both people and livestock, and it affected crops, thus affecting the economy from an agricultural, agricultural, excuse me, standpoint. Stock market crashed. Nobody's stuff is worth anything right now. And what happens? <laughs> the Great Depression. 13 million people unemployed. Very few jobs. And the question is, who's going to get them? You talk about sports. Who's going to get those jobs? Now, by 1932, the NFL was down to eight teams, which was an all-time low. You had the Bears, the Packers, the Giants, and then before they were the Detroit Lions, the Portsmouth Spartans, the Boston Braves, who I think became the Washington football team for all due respect, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the NFL, uh, the Chicago Cardinals, and the Staten Island Stapletons. Those were the eight teams. World War II, from 1939 to 1945. You had that that went on as well. And as the Great Depression was wrapping up, and then so was World War II, players started coming back. A lot of players. Remember, these jobs are very few. Very, very few. From 1920 to 1933, there had been 13 total black players that had played in the league. And from 1933 to 1946, there were none. None. Nada. Now, when those guys were coming back from the war, who's going to get those jobs? You're going to give it to the Caucasian guy? Or is the black guy going to get it? Well, you know, a lot of different reasons. Obviously, you have the economy uh, was bad and all of that stuff. But then at the same time, there's still Jim Crow. There's still racism. And they're not going to give a job to a black man, you know, just like, oh, this, this black guy's taking a white guy's job. I mean, that's what it was. Let's just say it the way it was. Well, in 1946, there was a new league that was formed, the All-American Football Conference, or the AAFC. You had eight new teams that, that had come into the fold, and this was uh, a, yet another rival league to the NFL. The new York Yankees, another Brooklyn Dodgers team, uh, the Buffalo Bisons. The Miami Seahawks, the Cleveland Browns, the Chicago Rockets, and the L.A. Dons, and the San Francisco 49ers. They actually ventured out to the West Coast, unlike the NFL, had no West Coast, theme, coast teams. Um, as I said at the beginning, the word for today is integration. Two of those pro football franchises, one NFL and one from the new AAFC, they were the first to sign 
African-American football players. Legendary Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Paul Brown would sign two of those players. There were four total. Two of those players of his own, they would turn out to be Pro Football Hall of Famers. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Black history is amazing. Uh, just sitting here thinking about it. And, you know, whether no matter what side of the fence that it comes from, whether it's the black side or even the Caucasian side, um, you know, at some point, the two had to work together. But I have to commend how so many powerful and strong minorities and black people in particular, how they had to persevere through some really, really terrible things. Um, it's it's amazing. Any, any minority group that has had to endure things, it's, it's really amazing. And I, and I hold these people in high regard because of the things that they had to live through, the things that they had to endure, the things that they had to hear, the, the, the both physical, mental, and emotional abuse that they had to endure. And yet, they still persevere. It's really amazing. Um, segregation dominated the times. Uh, we're talking about the early, uh, from the 20s to, to the early 30s and even prevalent through the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, segregation had dominated the time. Sports were no different. Uh, again, just going back to what I started off with, you know, inter integration uh, for the NFL or really reintegration of the NFL was going to take some work. And for 13 years, there had not been an African-American that had played pro football. Now, we talk about those who had to play a role, whether no matter what color they were, but let's just be real. If you were Caucasian or white, uh, I believe that you had to play some significant role in turn helping to happen, helping minorities to turn things around. Paul Brown was one of those. He was a head coach on in all three levels of football, and he was pretty much a Hall of Famer in every single level. Well, maybe not in college. He didn't stay there long enough, but he was great. He was a great coach. He only had one bad season. Um, he started off, and Ohioans, please forgive me if I say it wrong, in Massillian High School, he dominated for nine years and won championships. At Ohio State, he was only there for three seasons and should have been there longer had it not been for the war, and that was his dream job. 
He won. He came there in 41. They won the national championship, the first national championship for Ohio State uh, in 42. And in 43, it was really bad because they, they had a lot of guys that went off to the military. And even he himself had to go off to Great Lakes Naval Training Station, which he coached here on U.S. soil. I think it was in Illinois and Chicago, I think it was. Oh, God, I should have looked that up. But he he had to he had to join he joined the Navy and he actually coached football there at that at Great Lakes and before becoming the Cleveland Browns head coach that we know today. Bill Willis, he was Georgia born, and in 1921 uh, he was born in 1921. But he moved him and his family moved to Columbus, Ohio. Speaking of Ohio State, in 1922 he went to Columbus East High School. And he was a great athlete there, ran track, and he played football. Now, his brother Claude was a star tailback there, his older brother. He didn't want to have to follow after his big brother. I mean, some I don't know what that's like because I'm a big brother, but they don't want to follow after big brother. They want to do something different. Now, he wanted to play football, but he chose to play a different position. He played in, and he was great at it. But, you know, there were not a whole lot of prospects, just like his brother, who ended up going to an, uh, a historically black college at HBCU to play because, you know, a guy like him, he should have, the, the, the things that he did in high school, his brother Claude should have been at a big school. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen necessarily. Uh, the, the odds were against him being an African-American. Well, Bill Willis actually got a shot and he played at Ohio State and he started playing in 1941 for O-State as a sophomore Paul Brown was the head coach and Bill Willis was not only uh, a great offensive tackle there he was a defensive tackle as well and actually played nose guard who we know as nose guard they say defensive guard or whatever um, but the guy was 6'2", 210 pounds even for his time the time in which he was playing that was small for a lineman 6'2", 210 that was at a receiver today Maybe a, a big back or whatnot, a tight end, maybe a smaller uh, tight end. But but he was an offensive and defensive, uh, an offensive tackle and a nose guard. But the guy was quick. Again, he was one of those ones that helped Brown and Ohio State win the national championship in 1942. Fast forward to 1944, he became the first African-American in school history to be named an All-American. And afterwards, again, no pro prospects after high, uh, after college. He did go to a, a big-time school, which was great. He was one of the few that got the opportunity, and Paul Brown gave him that opportunity. Even Paul Brown back in high school at Massillon, he integrated his team. He brought blacks onto his team. I mean, he wanted winners. He didn't care what color you were. He wanted winners. Same thing with Ohio State, and it would go the same thing for the Cleveland Browns. We'll get to that in a second. Well, Willis in 44, he ended up becoming uh, a head coach, I believe it was, at Kentucky State and also the athletic director at the small school. Now there's another guy by the name of Marion Motley. If you don't know who he is, who he, this is who he is. Also a Georgia-born kid. Three years later, his family picked up and moved to Canton, Ohio. He attended Canton McKinley High School which was a big-time rival of Massillian High School in Ohio. 
and he played Motley played football and he also played basketball but as far as his football career they only lost three games his whole high school career they were 25 and three guess who the three losses were to yes Paul Brown's high school team Basilian and I mean that's what it was that's how great uh, Paul Brown's teams were well 1939 to 1943 he went to two different colleges Motley went to South Carolina State an HBCU and then he ended up transferring to Nevada afterwards he ended up in the Navy in 1944 and guess where he ended up Great Lakes Naval Training Station now I'm reading a book uh, called Paul Brown and they describe you know Paul Brown having to go over to Great Lakes he had to put together a football team and for uh, I guess you could say morale purposes they wanted a winner they didn't want bad teams and not only did they play the other uh let's just say the, the other academies but they also played some other colleges as well uh some regular schools they played ohio state as a matter of fact he went back to ohio state and they got the brakes beat off of him even though the game was close at one point i think that was what in 1943 i believe it was but um you know that season uh they finished you know really really good record i think they only played like nine games because they had 12 scheduled in like one or two games they they ended up having to cancel because somebody pulled out but he was looking for a lot of great players he had to get the best that he could and he knew he didn't have the greatest athletes in the world molly comes through and he's like i need that kid right there he's on my squad and motley played you know great for great lakes great for great lakes and you know even that uh that one year 1945 actually they beat notre dame 39 to 7 and notre dame we know how legendary that school is supposed to be or actually i'm sorry i'm sorry that that was wrong how legendary that school was and still really is you know they still are it's notre dame man uh, 1946 the aafc will kick off and it's tryout time they got their eight teams and there is a question at one point to the aafc commissioner uh, james crowley about negro players hey you know is it cool for us to sign these guys and basically he says that there is no rule stating that no negroes can play in this league but when you get to the tryouts all of these eight teams, they're, they're, uh, they're as white as a sheep. All right. So there's no black players to be found. All right. So Motley at this time is working at a steel mill and he's playing semi-pro baseball on the side. He writes a letter to Paul Brown. Hey, what's up? You know, I, I'm, I'm in playing shape coach. You know, is there you know a position for me? Well, Brown basically tells him that all of the running backs he's he's full of running backs you know the, the roster is it's not finalized but he's got a lot of running backs and basically he kind of puts motley you know kind of to the side you know it's like okay you'll probably get back to this guy bill willis like i said he's at kentucky state well he calls paul brown he wants to know if there's a position for him there as well from what i read in the book basically he says i'll call you back i'll call you back now again, it's been 13 years since any black pro football player has been uh, brought in. Of course, five months earlier, something had already changed, right? 
Well, Willis, at this point, he's like, okay, well, I think I'm going to go to the CFL. Now, if anyone has listened to any of my shows in the past, the CFL seems to always be the fallback because the NFL, before the AFL, that is, in 1960, the NFL was always the league that was saying, you know, we don't want, you know, blacks, or they're not giving a lot of blacks or uh, any minorities a lot of opportunities to play football professionally. And it's always, I've read left and right, where someone's ended up going to the CFL. I mean, that's, that's just been, that was what it was. Of course, the AFL, they started bringing in a lot of African-Americans in 1960, and they were a lot more welcoming. Not saying that they were so much different than the NFL, but they were more welcoming, okay? Um, but Willis is going to go play for the Montreal Alouettes. He's got his bags packed, and he's going. Well, he receives a phone call from Paul Horning, not the Paul Horning that played for the Green Bay Packers. This guy was a writer for the Columbus Dispatch. There's a back-and-forth conversation, and Willis is telling him, look, I bought a plane ticket. I don't have a lot of money, and I have to take this opportunity. Horning is saying, you need to go take this opportunity. You will make the team. Please just trust me. Well, what about the money? Don't worry about the money. I, I got to get down there. Well, we'll get you down there. And that's basically the, the, the basics of the discussion that Horning and Willis had. Willis relented, say, hey, look, okay, I, I'll go down there. And he just shows up. He shows up to the tryout. Now, everything that I've read, every video that I've watched, it really just came down to four plays. Willis was a nose guard, correct? So he's lined up over the center, and he had, I guess he went against a couple other linemen as well, but there were two centers in particular that he ended up going basically over, literally over, around, and under, like before the ball is snapped good, before Autogram even has the ball in his hand, he's wrapped around Autogram's forehead. He was just that quick. Keep in mind, that at Ohio State, Bill Willis was not only a football player, he also ran track. I'm not saying, he, he was not a, he was a sprinter, all right? Let me just say it, he was a sprinter. He ran the 60 and the 100 meters. 6'2", 210 pound sprinter. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing, nothing new about an athlete that big that can run that fast. Yes, I'm sure that they're, the athletes are supposed to be bigger, better, and all that stuff these days. But you have a 60 and 100-yard sprinter that's playing nose tackle in the NFL. And he's already been said to be too small for that position for that time. There were smaller players, yes. But this guy was cat quick. And he made the team. On August the 7th, he signed a $4,000 contract from Paul Brown but he told Paul Brown told him look don't inform anybody yet he had to basically get the press ready for this because nobody uh, in the league has signed anyone so he had to get everybody together um, and then there's the thought that yes he needed a roommate for Willis well I mean what better than another African American um, just being honest it's, it's the times three days later Marion Motley who, like I said, was working in the steel mill. He calls up Marion Motley, Paul Brown does. Hey, look, when can you be in Bowling Green, Ohio for these trials? And I think that Motley basically said he could be there that afternoon. He catches a ride with his cousin, and he's there. And 
Paul Brown is not very happy with those other fullbacks, running backs that he had. Motley got the job. <laughs> he got the job because he was just that great of a, a back. He's 6'2", 238 pounds of running back. This dude was a monster. And what was the team's reaction? Obviously, one thing that you have to understand about those times, all right, even though there were some integrative um, moments, that didn't mean that people did not like it, whether they were, uh, I'll say this, I know good and well that it wasn't easy for Paul Brown or just certain coaches or players and members of individual organizations or schools. You have people in your own organization and team that did not want blacks on their squad. Of course they did. They didn't want to play with them. They didn't want to coach them. And probably fans didn't even want to root for them. But they were brought in. Paul Brown had a meeting immediately. Hey, if you got a problem with this, you won't be a part of the team. Roll. Poof, be gone. You're gone. And Paul Brown was that kind of coach. What he said was law. And keep this in mind, the man who brought the team, the owner of the team, had already given Paul Brown uh, not only a stake in the team, but you're the coach and you're the GM and what you said is what you say is law. Mickey McBride, the owner, gave all power to Paul Brown. And everything was fine. E everything ended up being fine. Not perfect, but it was fine. So <laughs> then you bring in the first team that they played that first the first game, the Miami Seahawks. They beat the trash out of them 44 to nothing in that first week. Well, fast forward to the the I think it was the next to last game they played as a matter of fact they played them again down they had to play them in Florida bring in the Jim Crow laws Jim Crow laws in Miami in Florida say that blacks can't play with whites they can't participate in sporting events in Florida well Brown had intentions on taking his guys down there because they didn't want Motley or Willis down there. And they knew how good they were. They didn't want them playing. Well, there were letters that were written as were written to many, 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 many athletes that were African-American or, or minorities. And they were death threats. We will kill you. If you cross that goal line, we're going to kill you. They were death threats. They took both Motley and Willis, took the letter... Uh, the one letter that that uh, one of those letters to Paul Brown and basically all three of them agreed because Willis and Molly said look it'd be best we we, we just won't go um, probably best if we if we just hang back and they didn't go well <laughs> the Browns beat them by 10 less points 34 to nothing the Seahawks were terrible okay so it didn't even matter so they were trying to use any and everything that they could <laughs> to get that to get a w but it didn't work and the next game i think they played uh, the browns beat the next team i think it was like 66 to 14 in route to the championship that 46 team finished 12 and 2 and they beat the new york yankees in the championship i think it was 14 to 9 the cleveland browns would go on to win all four of the aafc championships the league only lasted four years. Why? Because of the dominance of the Cleveland Browns. In 1950, they would move on to the NFL. They were one of three teams that were brought in to the NFL. 
And Molly and Willis came along with Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I really love shows like this um, because I learned so much. Every show, I learned something. Um, but Mary and Molly and Bill Willis, those two guys—they're they're heroes, and they're—they were brave for everything that they did and had to endure, as was any african-american that endured anything in whatever they did in life in this life to make things better and to be a forerunner for those to come um now their greatness was just too great and so was paul brown because paul brown not only did he bring along two of the best african-americans in the country to be on his squad but he also brought in along half of the big 10 uh just naming some of them like Otto Graham, who's one of the few quarterbacks, I think, beat his Ohio State team all three years that they played him because he was the Northwestern halfback at the time. And he brought him in as his quarterback and uh, along with others. Uh, but their teams were so good. I mean, they had one undefeated season in the AAFC. And I think they lost a total of, what, three games or four games in four years or something like that. And they won all four championships. And because of that, the team, uh, the the league folded, and they absorbed the NFL absorbed three of those teams. And of course, there was a lot of mouth, particularly from a George Preston Marshall, the racist owner of the Washington Football Team at the time, saying our worst team could beat their best team. Didn't happen. And the um, I think it was the <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles that got the uh, got the beat down in the 1950 NFL championship. And not only did the Browns join the NFL in 1950, they won a fifth straight title. And for 10 years, they will go to the championship. They will be in the championship game. And they won it seven times. Four in the AAFC and they won three in the NFL. I mean, that's remarkable. Uh, Marion Motley that year, the first year they joined, he led the NFL in rushing in 1950. Uh, again, yeah, uh, that's that's dominance. They they had dominance throughout the fifties and in the early forties. Um, Marion Miley, he would finish his career as we wrap this thing up, nine years in the NFL. Eight of them with the Cleveland Browns. His last uh fifty-four, he's he was out. He was aging. Now keep in mind that both Motley and Willis were twenty-six and twenty-seven year old rookies. So they weren't exactly uh, young and they, they started off kind of like in the middle of their careers but they were great they were great every year that they played just about now Molly finished up his career in 1955 with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Brown he's, he had to tell him look my man you don't have it no more <laughs> and it, back in 53 it's like you know I, I love you but that's it and like I said Molly sat out for a year and Ended up uh, finishing his career with the Pittsburgh Steelers. But 
Uh, 5.7 yards per carry. I don't know if that's still the highest all-time yards per carry for a running back in NFL history. Uh, it may be. I, I didn't bother to check, but I did hear that number. Uh, but I think that number was aged in something that I heard it from. But he was a two-time first-team All-Pro with part of the NFL's 75th and 100th anniversary all-time teams. He's in the Cleveland Browns Ring of Honor. Duh. And in 1968, he became the first African-American inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And guess who his presenter was? Yes, Bill Willis. And not only that, Molly, you know, he's from Canton. <laughs> You're enshrined in your hometown. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, Bill Willis, he finished his career in 1953. He retired after the 53 season, playing those eight years in the league. Four-time first-team All-Pro, three-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-AAFC, of course, and second-team All-AAFC one of those years. And he's also, of course, in the Cleveland Browns Ring of Honor. In 1971, he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. And in 1977, yes, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Bill Willis signed, signed his contract, his Browns contract, August 7th, 1946. Three days later, Marion Motley signed with the Cleveland Browns August 10th, 1946. I saw NFL.com on their Twitter feed. I saw the actual contracts. That's pretty cool. Uh, rel you know, those old relics to have those, um, those those things to have in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. God, I got to get up there quick. But here's the thing. They weren't the first African-American pros to sign. That had happened five months earlier. That's all the time we have. We'll talk about these guys in the next Show references, let's get to them. Thanks to just two books. America's Game, the NFL at 100. Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams, the co-authors. And also, pretty good book. Paul Brown, The Rise, Fall, and Rise Again, Football's Most Innovative Coach by Andrew O'Toole. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. Thank you for listening. Presented by Belly of Sports, the Belly of Sports Podcast Network. BellyOfSports.com. Catch my show, especially my show, as well as others, in the podcast family of Belly of Sports, the podcast network, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, all of those great podcast platforms. You better tell your mom, your daddy, your cousin, your uncles, sisters, nephews, cousins, former roommate. You better listen to my show or I'll find your house. Out. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.